So it's the second to the last session on Friday afternoon. Who has plans Friday night in Vegas? <laughs> right? Thank you for being here. We're really excited. Dr. Carroll and myself are both, we're really um, excited to get the invitation to come and talk to you about low pressure headaches. And uh, this is my second year, his first year at Pain Week, and it's just been a blast. How many of you are first timers out there? Great. You loving the conference? All right. Yeah. It's 4.30 on Friday in Vegas. All right. So um, I'm, I'm not going to take up too much time um, because I really want you to um, hear Dr. Carroll and uh, hear the experiences about um, this uh, very important topic. Um, but I um, was uh, given the opportunity to uh, introduce the topic. Here are our disclosures. I'll spend too much time. So today we're going to talk about the clinical features of low pressure headache and really give you a good feeling um, for understanding uh, this phenomenon. We're going to talk about the unique uh, patient history um, that you may try to elicit or that may come your way uh, in these patients that you're seeing and uh, imaging characteristics. We're going to spend a lot of time reviewing some of the imaging characteristics that are unique uh, in this patient population. And then we're going to talk about the um, appropriate treatment options that are available. So um, this is a bit of a busy slide, and I know it's hard in kind of this bright room. But um, what I want you to focus on are kind of the blues, the tops. So you as a practitioner see a patient, a new patient in your office um, with a complaint of headache, or you see a patient in your office that you've been taking care of for headache that continues to get worse or just doesn't respond to treatment. So what are the two diagnoses that you typically think about, right? They're really those two, those two first ones. So either migraine or transform migraine, transform maybe over medication overuse headache, or it's um, headache maybe with some musculoskeletal component to it. So an occipital neuralgia, a cervicalgia, um, a cervical headache. But those are really the two, I think, that most practitioners will focus in on. And I think the vast majority of the time, you're correct. I think that um, there's a huge uh, population of patients um, that suffer headaches from those pathophysiologies. But not all of our patients do, right? So what do we do with that refractory patient that complains of symptoms similar to POTS, that doesn't get better, that kind of doesn't fit that niche of migraine or cervicogenic headache? Do we just continue to treat them like migraine? Or do we think about thinking outside the box, what are some of the other potential complications or causes of this headache. And so today we're here to talk to you about low pressure headache. All right, so when we think about low pressure headache, um, often we'll think of um, uh, postural puncture headache or spinal headache, which probably a lot of you in the audience are familiar with. So that's the characteristic typical headache um, that sometimes women will complain of if they've had an epidural or they've had a dural puncture where they get the worst headache of their life when they're upright and they're sitting upright or standing. And then once they lay down, that they, the symptoms abate. They feel a lot better. Um, but unfortunately, you can't live life on your back all the time, right? I'm going to make a really off joke, so I apologize now. But we are in Vegas, right? So anyway, so you can't live your life like that. There's no quality of life if you're just on your back. So the nice thing about postural puncture headaches is that they're usually self-limiting. Um, we usually know what the cause of that, uh, that is. Um, it's definitely very fixable. About 90% of those headaches will respond to one epidural blood patch. So it does require an invasive treatment. Um, usually it's, uh, a, the leak is from a single source, and, and it's identifiable in terms of what the cause and result is. 
Then we've got spontaneous dural leaks or chronic leaks that are um, a lot more subtle um, that could evolve over time, could wax and wane in terms of the types of symptoms that we see. We may not even recognize, if we don't ask the right questions, what the cause is. Um, these are headaches or leaks that might have multiple foci, um, not just one um, area that, that we actually need to target. So that makes the diagnosis and the treatment a little bit more challenging. Um, it's often mysterious. Again, symptoms can wax and wane. Um, about 30 to 40% of these patients uh, will have multi-foci, um, uh, as I talked about in terms of lakes. Um, and only about 30% will respond to a single epidural blood patch. But the good news is that this is potentially fixable. And we'll talk about that today. So these are your typical patients. This is, these, are the, these are the symptoms that your patients will per, uh, present with. So most often female, but we do see men um, that suffer with spontaneous leak or chronic leak um, headaches. Um, but these are um, people that complain, again, of, of the, the most um, intense headache possible. Um, not always will it be positional. Usually the headache will present um, as the day goes on. So these are patients that when they wake up, maybe their symptoms are more tolerable. But as the day goes on, symptoms progress. Um, associated with a lot of nausea and dizziness, some vomiting. Um, but mostly uh, your patients will complain of a lot of nausea and uh, dizziness. Ringing, hissing, whooshing in the ear. Now, a lot of practitioners may look at this or, or, or listen to this symptom and say, well, that's vascular. That's got to be vascular. Okay? And that's not a bad treatment you know, approach or um, uh, investigative uh, road to go down. But realize that with the constellation of symptoms, this could be included in your patients with a low-pressure headache. Um, neck stiffness. Um, tightness, maybe even a little bit of a radiculopathy that doesn't go all down the arm, or maybe a concordant radiculopathy that, that, that may, again, skew you to a different diagnosis. But again, putting the symptoms all together. Extreme fatigue. So these patients um, uh, suffer from extreme fatigue to the point that sometimes they have to go on disability, not only from the pain, but just their inability to be functional. And then a lot of cognitive dysfunction. So kind of that, um, that, that, um, that fibro fog that, that some patients um, complain of or that um, uh, disassociation from really what's going on, just confusion, level of confusion is really high in this patient population. So why, why do patients start suffering from chronic leaks or, or even acute leaks that then um, go on to resolve but then become chronic later? It could be from a single insult, um, to a spinal tap um, for diagnostic purposes or um, for therapeutic purposes. Something as simple as a whiplash injury um, can cause a patient then to cross over to the other side where they're all of a sudden leaking if they were predisposed to that in the beginning. Um, uh, 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 altered uh, connective tissue. What am I looking for with the spine? I'm looking for... Bone spurs. Bone spurs! All right, so now I'd like to introduce Dr. Carroll. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to talk to you to give you some illustrations of what I think are the big four causes of leak. As she just mentioned, there's altered connective tissue. People with genes that make their connective tissue more weak are much more likely to develop a CSF leak spontaneously. People who've had a needle in their back, whether an epidural that gets a little too deep and gets into it, 
um, or people who've had a spinal tap. Some of those develop chronic leaks, and I'm going to show you some data to support that. Bone spurs, people who get degenerative changes in their spine, sometimes those degenerative discs start to calcify, and a sharp edge of calcium up against the dura can lead to a leak. People often don't think of that, don't look for that. And um, the last one is whiplash. People are so used to thinking of uh, the neck pain that comes with whiplash uh, as being due to facet joint degenerative changes or things like that, but there's some data out there, and I'll show it to you, that suggests a significant portion of these people may have chronic leaks. And, uh, and the big difference you can make in their life if you make that diagnosis and what the impediments are to making that diagnosis. So I'll start by talking about uh, some cases that we've seen at Stanford just in the last year. It didn't take me 10 years to collect these people. These are just people who we saw in the last year at Stanford. So Rudolph, 46-year-old male, um, with a history of a C6, C7 fusion with an excellent recovery in 2004. In 2014, he begins having neck muscle spasms, not headache, not positional headache. He came in with the principal complaint of severe neck pain and neck muscle spasms. And his agenda when he came in was to talk to me about injecting Botox in his neck muscle spasms. Now, he also complained of progressive disorientation the longer he was upright. The longer he was upright, he'd get more and more disoriented until he'd finally lie down, and after lying down for a half hour or so, he'd feel better. Um, and he had, of course, as everybody who has weird symptoms, he had his own narrative for what caused this. And his narrative for this was that he had been on a work site and he had been exposed to carbon monoxide. And he had chronic carbon monoxide poisoning and it was causing his muscles to spasm. And someone told him the reason he was getting disoriented is the muscle spasm was causing his neck to rotate. And that was putting some traction on his vertebral artery. He also complained of diffuse patchy sensory changes like numbness in his face. Um, and mental fog with decreased memory. All of this relieved by lying supine. And this, this whole talk about um, carbon monoxide poisoning almost had me just giving him the Botox he wanted and not digging any further. But then when he got up to say goodbye to me, I'm six foot two, and he towered over me at six foot six. And one of the things you're going to learn in this talk is that's a clue. People who are tall, like six foot six tall, their connective tissue is different. And people with that different connective tissue are more likely to leak. This is what his MRI looked like. And what's important about this MRI is that it does not show the typical changes associated with spontaneous intracranial hypotension. It doesn't show the brain changes associated with a leak. The brain changes associated with a leak are typically dural enhancement up here, some brain sagging down here, um, venous distension, which he doesn't have. But the truth is, is his fourth ventricle is a little on the small side, and his cerebellum is starting to kind of, it's what they would call a low-lying cerebellum. It's not actually herniating. It doesn't, it's not a Chiari, but it's moving in that direction. The official report on this MRI is normal. Normal MRI, no intracranial abnormality. And his CT myelogram showed this. This is up in his neck. Here's his fusion. And at the level above his fusion, what do we have here? We've got a calcified little disc osteophyte. The disc bulged out. It started to calcify. 
This is what it looks like closer up. You can see it's pushing in. So on the CT myelogram here, the white is contrast in the intrathecal space, in the spinal fluid. The black is the filling defect of the spinal cord, and then there's more intrathecal space. What you see as you follow the ventral, the ventral fecal sac here is, is that this osteophyte bulges in so far that it's actually contacting the cord. So it's not just an osteophyte against the dura. It's actually pushing on the dura. This is what it looks like on axial imaging. Again, here it is. The white is, again, spinal fluid with contrast in it. The dark is the cord. And here's that calcified osteophyte. And you see it actually pushing in through the ventral fecal fluid, indenting, coming in, actually causing the cord to rotate a little bit. The other thing I want to point out to you that is talked about in the literature, but often not really commented on by even very, very good neuroradiologists, you see this contrast spreading out along the nerve root adjacent to that osteophyte. That constellation of findings is a giveaway. And your neuroradiologist, even a world-class one at a great institution, isn't going to call that out. But if you have someone who has a good clinical story for a leak, and you go sit down and you go through it with the neuroradiologist, this kind of thing is the most often missed piece of evidence that someone really is leaking. Here's the next level down. Again, contrast way out here along the nerve root. Again, a nice sharp-edged osteophyte pushing in there. And the, uh, and the nerve root at the same level. And again, contrast out here. This CT myelogram was read as no leak. And we'll keep questions to the end, okay? Uh, this was read as no leak. I'm going to tell you about another patient. Again, patient seen this year. Nikki had been previously diagnosed with a Chiari. She'd had skull base surgery to uh, decompress her skull base a Chiari is when the cerebellum starts to sag through the bottom of the skull base. The prevailing hypothesis for this is that this is caused by a developmental abnormality where the back part of your skull just doesn't have enough room to contain your brainstem and your cerebellum. It turns out that your cerebellum poking through the bottom of your skull is also a primary imaging finding in people with leaks. But when they saw hers, they called it a Chiari instead of a leak. They did skull-based surgery for her. She continued to have symptoms until um, in 2014, she had the sudden onset of neck pain, a blackout of her vision, and intense headache while at a baseball game. She was brought to UCSF where it was found she was also in atrial fibrillation. It also should be noted she had a history of quote-unquote neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. That's another a uh, moniker for POTS, or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is another way of saying this woman had a history of being more symptomatic when she was upright. More symptomatic when she's upright, plus having cerebellar tonsils poking out her skull base, somebody should have been thinking about a leak, and that's what we thought of when she came and saw us. This is what her MRI looked like. Again, it does not show the classic features uh, that are thought to be diagnostic for a leak. There's no dural enhancement. There's not a ton of fluid in front of her pons. Her fourth ventricle also small. Her cerebellar tonsils, again, low-lying. But this is called as a normal MRI. She gets a CT myelogram. This is her CT myelogram. And what you see here is a little osteophyte off the dorsal lamina poking into the thecal sac, changing it, 
And if you look real hard, and it'll be pretty well shown on the next slide a little better, there's a little haziness here. See that? Little contrast out there. That was not called as a leak. See it a little better here. And again, you see it here. All right? But that can be real subtle. Is there a blush on the other side maybe too? Maybe. And then at the next level up, you see this kind of stuff out here in the neural foramen. And you kind of, it's hard to see where the border of the thecal sac is on this side, right? The reason it's hard to see is contrast is outside the dura, gradually getting less concentrated, okay? So when you can't see the margin of the dura, you should be worried. Another patient, again seen this year. Oh, okay. The uh, next patient, Veronica, um, came in. She had a previous history of a lumbar fusion, had done well, good recovery, um, was doing well in life generally, and then one day out of the blue starts having the worst headache of her life, does not identify a postural component to it, but as Tracy was talking about earlier, does identify that she has a classic second half of the day um, headache pattern. She wakes up in the morning after being flat for eight hours at night. She wakes up in the morning feeling pretty good. Then as the day goes on and she's upright more and more, things get worse and worse. The other thing, there were two things about her that made me go look for a leak. One was she complained of this awful smell in her nose constantly. Okay? That's a cranial nerve sign. That's from traction on her olfactory nerve. And the other thing was, after three or four months of this headache, she's with her family down in Disneyland, spending a lot of time walking upright, spending time in the heat, maybe getting a little dehydrated, and she has a full-on grand mal seizure. Okay? And when they imaged her, her brain MRI was read as normal, like the previous ones I've shown you. We did an MRI of her full spine, looking to see if we'd find anything unusual that might indicate a leak. And uh, what I want to show you here is this. Not a very prominent disc. Um, this is it magnified a little bit, and you see it pushing in towards the spinal cord here. It just looks like a bulging disc. It doesn't look like anything that would cause a leak. And again, for this side of the room, that's what we're looking at. When we look at the axials, now the disc looks a little unusual. It's, um, it's a really focal protrusion. It does go all the way to the cord, but it doesn't look like it has a sharp edge, and there's no reason to think that that's anything more than a soft, bulging disc pushing on her thecal sac. So we got a CT myelogram to get a better look at that area, and this is what we see. All right, so the middle part is at the level where that disc protrusion is, and what you see here on the CT myelogram that's totally missed on the MRI is that that protrusion is calcified. And not only is it calcified, but it has a nice sharp edge. Going straight through the dura, right, you lose that anterior border of fluid all the way to the cord, okay? And if you look a segment above or look a segment below, what do you see out here in the neural foramen again? That contrast, right? Was this red as showing a leak? No. This was red again as showing no leak, okay? And um, only when you went and sat down with the radiologist and said, 
this person has a really good story for a leak. I'm not looking for you to tell me that you see a leak. I'm looking for you to tell me which level doesn't look like the rest so I can know where to patch. Okay? I'd already decided I was going to patch her. Right? She had the second half of the day headache. She had a full-on grand mal seizure. She's got this weird stuff smelling in her nose. It doesn't matter how crazy a patient is. She's not fabricating a grand mal seizure at Disneyland. Okay? That's a sign there's really something neurologically wrong. And you put that together with this kind of imaging, you should be patching. Okay? Here's another patient we saw this year. Again, the osteophyte poking into the dorsal dura. And at the same level, right above, contrast spreading into the neural foramen. Again, read as a normal, not, uh, not showing a leak. Okay? So about four or five months ago, I get it into my head that this is a really important radiologic sign that we've kind of started to become aware of. And let's go ahead and write a paper about this. And I start writing the introduction and pulling papers. And the first thing I find as I start pulling papers on the neuroimaging findings of a leak is that they all describe uh, abnormal nerve root findings. So I send these papers off to the neuroradiology department at Stanford, and they say, hmm, that is interesting. We'll stop saying that there's no leak. We're not going to say that there is a leak, but we'll stop saying there's no leak, and we'll just say there's contrast along the neural foramen, and let us argue about what it means. All right? So progress comes slowly. All right, so we talked about how osteophytes cause uh, spinal fluid leaks. This is the other thing that causes spinal fluid leaks. We, we have met the enemy, and it is us. And we cause spinal fluid leaks. And um, in fact, my daughter, part of how I got into this is my daughter had this procedure and wound up with a leak. But I'm going to tell you about someone named Caitlin. Caitlin um, came in to have, she's 22. She came into Stanford to have a labral, pair, a a labral tear repaired. Um, that may tell us that there's something a little unusual about her connective tissue. There's not a lot of 22-year-olds who are healthy who have um, labral tears, but she did. Uh, she woke up in a lot of pain in the recovery room, and she was offered an epidural, which she accepted. And when they were doing the epidural, they knowingly got a wet tap. This happens sometimes when you're doing an epidural. Um, the team that knew that they had done it uh, followed up with her the next day when she was on the floor. She was having a headache. They offered her a blood patch. After the discomfort of the epidural from the night before, she was not interested in having any new needles in her back. The pain service said, no problem. This usually takes care of itself. Get back to us if you can continue to have a problem. 18 months later, she wanders into the pain clinic, having essentially lost a year and a half of her life where she's been in bed most of the time. Somehow or other, the nature of the wet tap and what that could mean for her was lost. Um, luckily, it was picked up in the history when she came in complaining of a headache. She didn't come in and say, I've got a continued leak. She came in and said, I have a chronic headache. I don't know what it's from. It started around the time of my surgery. And it was only <laughs> digging into the records that it became clear, like she had a known wet tap. Um, is that really unusual? The, uh, the answer is no. So one of my colleagues, Pam Flood at Stanford, uh, did a uh, case control study of people who had had wet taps over the course of several years at Columbia Hospital in New York. They found 40 people who had had wet taps, and they got people who had had epidurals that were accidentally given a known dural puncture, 
and they collected 40 controls, people who had had, had uh, epidurals without a wet tap. And they called these women a year to two years after to assess the likelihood that they had chronic headaches. And what they found, so this is, again, case control 40. Um, this is 12 to 24 months post-wet tap. We have on the y-axis the incidence of chronic headache. And on the left side, we have the control group with a 5% incidence of chronic headache. But if you had a wet tap, and these were people with a known wet tap who were followed to make sure they were okay, the rate of having a chronic headache a year to two years later is close to 30%. That's a six times increase in risk compared to the control group. Okay? Now, if they broke it down further between people who had an a epidural blood patch and people who didn't have an epidural blood patch offered to them, the people who had an epidural blood patch definitely do better. That implies that these headaches are related to leaks. Having a blood patch was partially but not completely protective. It's not just a random headache. It's related to a leak. Otherwise, the blood patch shouldn't make a difference. But blood patch reduces the rate of having a headache by a full half compared to the patients who got a headache but did not have a blood patch. So if you got a wet tap and you didn't get a blood patch and you were followed until your headache supposedly went away, there's almost, you know, there's a 40% chance you're going to wind up with chronic headaches. These people are almost certainly leaking chronically. And they're not getting recognized. They're just chronic headaches. All right? Okay, whiplash. Nobody thinks of whiplash as a cause of a CSF leak. So this was a paper published several years back in the journal Anesthesia and Analgesia called Epidural Blood Patch Therapy in Chronic Whiplash-Associated Disorder. So what's whiplash-associated disorder? For them, whiplash-associated disorder was head and neck pain that starts after whiplash-type accident associated with some of the things that Tracy talked about, maybe chronic nausea, maybe chronic dizziness, brain fog, things that a lot of patients with whiplash complain of, okay? In this study, they looked at 66 patients who had whiplash-associated disorder. They were a mean 33 months post the accident. This is three years after their car accident, okay? And uh, 36, almost more than, more than half, almost half, were found to be leaking and were patched. And these are the results that they found. So before the accident, basically, they're all full-time employed. All right? Before their epidural blood patch, basically none of them are employed. And after getting blood patched, at least, uh, uh, at least half of them go back to full-time employment. Another group goes back to part-time employment. And really, a small percentage are still at the same level of disability. And this is what they were doing to diagnose them. They were doing... Uh, radionuclide cisternography. So what's a radionuclide cisternography? It's like a CT myelogram, except instead of injecting contrast and doing a CT scan, you inject some radioactive material. Your nuclear medicine department does this. And they get scanned three hours, 24 hours, and 48 hours later. And what you see here on the left is what it looks like when someone's leaking, okay? And what it shows here is something that a lot of nuclear medicine people will miss, which is uh, early filling in the bladder. You should not have filling in the bladder before three hours. What is this filling in the bladder? So it turns out that 
the material that you inject, if there's no leak, it should take it at least six hours to get up to the head and start to get resorbed into the venous system. Once it's in the venous system, it, it very quickly gets resorbed by the kidneys and put into the urine, and then it should show up in the bladder. The only way it gets into the bladder before three hours is if there's a leak and this is getting out somewhere. The other thing that you can see here is the, the tracer gets up to about there. It really doesn't go much further. And so they talk about as a finding, quote unquote, paucity over the cerebral convexities. It's not getting up to the top of the head. And here, in fact, the other thing you see, compare it to this, is that there's a kind of lumpy bumpiness of the tracer here that's gone here. I think this lumpy bumpiness is much like what we saw on the neural foramen on your CT myelogram. This is, con this is material that's getting out of the intrathecal space and getting into either the subdural or the epidural space and spreading out along the nerve roots in that wider space. This is the same person after being patched, okay? No more early bladder fillings, no more lumpy bumpiness, and it gets all the way up to the bottom of the brain. Here's a different patient, same findings. Early bladder filling, you see some extra fecal contrast here, all right? A little lumpy bumpiness to it. After patching, this is what they look like. Okay, so that's one study. Here's another study. Uh, intracranial hypotension following motor vehicle accident overlooked cost of post-traumatic head and neck pain, basically whiplash. So different people ca cottoning on to the same idea, which is uh, if you have an area, and by the way, notice both of these people, their leak is down in their lumbar spine after their whiplash injury. Okay, so what do you make of this? There's some weakness down in the fecal sac, pretty low down. They have a motor vehicle accident. They hit that seatbelt at 30 or 40 miles an hour. They get a good pressure wave through their fecal sac. And if it's weak anywhere, that's where they're going to get a leak. It doesn't have to be in the neck. No matter where you're leaking, your neck and head will hurt. So the fact that you're complaining of head and neck pain doesn't mean your leak is up there. And in this case, in fact, most people were not leaking in the neck. All right, so um, this is from the other paper. And what they're showing here and here is that, in fact, you can see some increased intensity on these T2 images outside the fecal sac. And you see this whole rim with this little film delineating the epidural space from the intrathecal space. I'll tell you, I think this leak is actually coming from up here where the degenerative disc is, up in the neck, just like I showed you with Rudolph, okay? All right. Um, we've seen people who've had uh, CSF leaks after brachial plexus injuries, the classic uh, fly off the motorbike and get the brachial plexus injury to your... Uh, when your shoulder hits the ground. Um, when you avulse a nerve root, you're gonna rip the fecal sac too. And these people often have um, headaches, neck pain, ringing in the ears, and it gets lost because they're complaining of this burning pain going down their arm, and everybody's trying to treat them and do a Dres lesion and stim, and, but in fact, they're also leaking. So we talked about how, um, we talked about how doctors can cause leaks. We talked about how bone spurs can cause leaks. We talked about how whiplash injuries cause leaks. And now I'm gonna tell you about the, the, what I think is kind of the big miss thing, which is when your connective tissue is wrong, 
when there's something different about your connective tissue, you're much more likely to have a leak. And so this is clearly true of people with Marfan syndrome. It's clearly true of people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. But it's also true of people who have some stigmata of these conditions but don't meet criteria for the actual syndrome. You are much more likely to find a pectus excavatum in someone who's leaking. You're much more likely to find a scoliosis in someone who's leaking. The person who's leaking is much more likely to have multi-level degenerative changes in their spine and multi-level arthritis and temporal mandibular joint pain at an early age because all of these things indicate there's something not quite right about their connective tissue. So people with abnormal connective tissue will get cataracts at an early age. If you're 70 and you've got a cataract and you spent a lot of time in the sun, that's no big deal. But if you're getting bilateral cataracts at age 40, there's something different about your connective tissue. If you can do this with your body, there's something wrong with your connective tissue. And so your headache, the headache from someone who used to be captain of the cheerleading squad or the person who used to really excel at ballet, who used to be a professional dancer, that should be an alarm bell for you to look. All right, these are two patients who came in to, to talk to me about their headaches. Um, you can see how far back this pinky bends. You should not be able to cross each finger over the other finger and then at the same time bend your thumb down to touch your wrist. All right? The hand exam is important in evaluating chronic headache. This is a medical student who came in to talk to me about headache. He didn't know that I had an interest in leaks. And while he's sitting there talking to me about his headache, he's bending his finger back like this as a nervous tick. He's not trying to impress me. I didn't ask him to do this as part of my physical exam. He's just doing this while he's telling me about his daily headache. All right? You just have to recognize that clue. All right. And what happens when someone can do this with their hands, what does their myelogram look like? It looks like this, where you have, here's again, this is a coronal section of a CT myelogram, and what you notice is what level doesn't look like the rest. It's this level, where you have these little grape-like things coming off the nerve root. I've blown it up here so that you can see it a little better. Again, over here. These are, to the fecal sac, what a berry aneurysm is to the arterial system. This is an aneurysmal dilatation at a point of where the dura gets weak because the nerve root's poking through. But is it called a fecal sac aneurysm? No. The radiologists call this a quote-unquote perineural cyst or a meningeal diverticula, which tells you nothing. Unless you've been to a lecture like this, somebody tells you that you have a perineural cyst, you have no idea that they've just told you what you have is a, a structure that tells us something about your connective tissue and that we know can rupture and leak. Okay? So oftentimes with the myelograms, you don't see the leak itself. You see the thing causing the leak, like a bone spur, or you see the thing that is leaking, like the perineural cyst. And that brings us to Tarlov cysts. Tarlov cysts, which many of us were taught actually have no functional importance, that's an aneurysm of the fecal sac at the bottom of the fecal sac. And that's the worst place to have an aneurysm of your fecal sac because that's seeing three feet of water pressure every time you stand up. And I've blown up this Tarlov cyst so that you can see it bigger over here. And you'll see this 
this aneurysm has an aneurysm of it, right? So you've got to know to look in the tailbone when somebody comes in complaining of a chronic daily headache. And all of these people were seen in the last year in a pain clinic that at least for the first six months of the year wasn't looking for this, okay? You just have to be aware. These people are, this is not a rare thing. These people are walking into your clinics. All right, so here's a, on the left, we have basically a CT myelogram the way it should look. When you see this kind of multi-level degenerative change, yes, they have a bad spine, but people don't have bad disc problems at every level when their connective tissue is normal. And in fact, when they do genome-wide association studies in the military to look for genes that are more common in people who have disc bulges at an early age, what they're pulling out are genes for connective tissue. This person's connective tissue is not right, so they have a double whammy. They've got the chronic degenerative spine stuff, and some of those degenerative changes are getting kind of sharp and pushing in at the fecal sac which is not as strong because their connective tissue is not right. And this is what it can look like at the OR, where you have a nice aneurysm that's developed a tear. And when you have a tear like that, it's not a punctate lesion like when you stick a needle in. It doesn't always respond to the first patch. And so like Tracy was saying, if you've got a little needle poke, yeah, a patch will fix that 90% of the time the first time. If you've got a tear with some length there, that's going to take some time, and 30% will respond to the first patch. You do repeated patching, that number goes up to 66 or 75%. Now, when you do a patch, why might it not work so well? Okay? Here's somebody who just got an epidural blood patch and a CT myelogram afterwards, and what you see is the blood is here in the back. It hasn't spread around to the front. It hasn't spread out to the neural foramen, right? 90% of the leaks are somewhere in the front or in the neural foramen. That's why it may be hard for an epidural blood patch to get it. If your blood patch doesn't work, you can do a fibrin glue patch. But you can see, again, you inject that fibrin glue, it can fill up that foramen. You typically come in here and do these transforaminally. But it doesn't spread real far. It doesn't go to the other side. It doesn't go up or down a level. You can do surgery to help people with these leaks. So let me tell you who these images were today, okay? You remember the bone spur in the neck? That looked like this. His MRI looked like that. After he was patched, that was him. He basically went home, took a nap, and said he, for the first time in years, felt normal, and he stayed totally fixed with that one patch. But it took a little courage to stick uh, a needle in above his fusion up here in his neck. Uh, but that's the miracle that happens. And this is him. He's a gamekeeper in Africa. He's gone back to work. He's doing well. That's a lion with him. This is the woman who had been diagnosed as having POTS and a Chiari, but was still symptomatic after her brain surgery, her skull base surgery. This is what she looks like after two patches. This is the woman who had the seizure at Disneyland. That's what she looks like after her patch. And these are other people. That's the epidural who, that never had gotten patched. And these are the other people who we've patched just this year. And their MRIs, which were read as normal. And this is what they were diagnosed with. POTS, Q 
Chiari malformation, Ehlers-Danlos, Tarlov cysts, chronic migraine, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. One had been diagnosed with Parkinson's. So let me tell you about one more patient, and that's a 26-year-old woman named Kristen who's sitting here with us. And so she's going to tell you a little bit about herself. You press the top button for uh, the point. Can you hear me? Maybe. Uh, I'm 28 now, by the way. 28 now. <laughs> so just speak up. Um, so, yeah, I uh, guess I'm here just to tell you a little bit about my story. Um, so I've been suffering from migraines, chronic migraines, headaches, complaining about it since I was seven years old. Seven-year-old complaining about a headache is probably not super common. Um, I fainted for the first time in second grade, standing in line, and I think throughout elementary school, a handful of times, just fainting or near fainting, very dizzy. I remember feeling nauseous in elementary school, feeling like I couldn't go play. You know, I would just feel disoriented. And I didn't know why. Um, it got progressively worse as I got into middle school. Um, then I started noticing more of the brain fog feeling, just confusion. Like, and I mean, you're a 16-year-old complaining about this, so I'm super tired and I can't go to school. So I was in a small town in northern Michigan, and I didn't have a diagnosis. We didn't know what was wrong. Um, by my senior year of high school, I was fainting 10 plus times a day. I couldn't walk from the car to the classroom. I couldn't walk from my locker to the classroom without feeling so disoriented and the, the lights would like close in and black out. I would lose peripheral vision and I'd just be walking down the hallways totally dizzy. Um, and the level of migraine pain was just impossible. Um, so I finally got diagnosed with POTS. I went to the Mayo Clinic um, in, when I was 17 and had a diagnosis. I had an answer. I knew what it was, so I could identify with that. Um, and it made sense of why I couldn't stand in line and why I couldn't walk for long periods and why I had heat intolerance and felt sick all the time, even though I looked fine. Um, can we, is this the next slide? Uh, the right button. slides are here. Um, so talk about what your headaches were like. Well, the headaches at that point, I would just knew that they were migraines and it was constant and I would go in the ER and they'd give me medication. Okay, I feel a little better, send me home. I might be back the next day. Um, it felt better when I was lying down, but the longer I stood up, it just got worse. Uh, I had a few years with medication that I was treating for POTS few years I was doing okay. I was starting to be active again. I was able to finish uh, college, got my degree, move out to California, and I was working, able to work full-time. I did have headaches, and I remember going, and I was like self-treating with pain meds all the time. Um, I was all right, though. And then in June 2016, I... 2014. 2015? 2016, 2015. Last year. <laughs> um, June 16th, that's what it was, is when I landed in the ER. I had had a migraine for about 10 days, nonstop. Was still trying to get to work every day. 
and I fainted in the break room. Went home from work that day, wound up in the ER that weekend, and I was then bedbound for about six months. I had such a level of headache. It was just this deep, radiating pain from the inside of my head all the way out. I had three deep pinpoints on the right side. Never went away. Impossible brain fog. I couldn't hold a conversation. My mind wouldn't give me the words that I was trying to say. Uh, it was just a level of pain that I would never wish on anyone. Um, but the trouble was I would go into the ER constantly and they would give me pain medication and then we would go back to the fact that, oh, I diagnosed with POTS and that's all it was. Um, so, um, that's, you want to show them your imaging? Is that the next slide? Yeah, this is, this is the timeline. That's my hand. Um, do you want to mention about the sure. slides here? So um, this is the MRI we got um, when we had called over to the POTS clinic and said, hey, listen, uh, when you see people with Ehlers-Danlos, who are also complaining of POTS and also have severe headaches, we want you to send them over to us so we can work people up for a leak. So we got this MRI. The MRI, uh, it doesn't show a lot of fluid in front of the pons. That What's called the prepontine cistern doesn't have a lot of fluid. Um, but she's got plenty of fluid in her fourth ventricle. Her cerebellar tonsils are not poking out. Her pituitary is not big and hyperemic. There's no dural enhancement. It is a normal MRI. Uh, and this is how it was read. Normal MRI, uh, no brain abnormality, and then her CT myelogram was read as, quote, unquote, no convincing CSF leak was seen. It did, however, show this. This is down at the bottom of her thecal sac. This is what it's supposed to look like, but on the other side, we have this perineural cyst that's fully opacified. And in her thoracic spine, this looks kind of familiar, maybe a little bone edge here and some nerve root contrast there. You can see that this is at the bottom of her lung fields. And up in her neck, again, this one nerve root that doesn't look quite right. So we decided to offer her a blood patch. And maybe you can talk about what you experienced as we started to treat you for a, a leak. Yeah, well, to begin with, when I got the phone call from you about hey, I, I think you might not have POTS, you might have a, a leak. And that thought is just kind of a little crazy as a patient being like, really? You can just do a patch and it's all going to go away. It seems too good to be true. Um, and after the first blood patch, it was a complete night and day difference. All of that pain was immediately gone the next day. I still felt some symptoms, but that intense pain was just gone overnight. Um, it was about two months in. I had, I had been on disability for about six months. I was able to get back to work full time. I was now working. And then two, week, two months into it, okay, the headache started to come back. So we went ahead and did a second blood patch. Again, immediately I felt significantly better. Um, it was about a month after that. I still had some ringing in my ears, a few more symptoms, um, a little lightheadedness here and there significantly better. I was still able to work and, and tolerate the pain, but it was just a little uncomfortable. Why do I still have that pain? So we did the third blood patch. Um, that one 
I would say was a lot more painful because I immediately went into a high pressure. Um, so this, this is one of the things that can happen is if you're leaking for a long time and then you're suddenly patched, you can develop something called rebound intracranial hypertension. The thought is maybe when you're leaking for a long time, you upregulate your production of spinal fluid. And, uh, and then when you suddenly seal the leak, it actually takes your brain some time to downregulate the production of spinal fluid. So it's a generally benign, self-limited thing, but can last for some people several months, usually days to weeks. Yeah, for me it was about, I would say, a week and a half that it was kind of this strange, like, okay, still headache, but it was dealing with it. And within two weeks, I suddenly had no pain in my head for the first time, I think, since I was seven. For the first, I never knew that you couldn't, that you did, had no feeling in your head. There was always some pressure there my entire life. And I, when I couldn't feel it, it was just like a crazy feeling, like I, I didn't know it, you could feel that good. Um, and now I've been working full time and completely sealed and healthy. So I, I just know that there's other people out there that either are diagnosed with POTS or have the similar symptoms and it can be fixed and they can feel this relief. Talk about some of the symptoms we don't usually think of when we think of leaks. Um, ringing in the ears, fatigue, brain fog. I think the worst is the fatigue because nobody understands it. They, they hear that you say you're tired, but it's a level of fatigue that you can't get out of bed. I remember laying in bed that whole time staring at my legs like I can't move. Your body will not cooperate. Um, the brain fog that you just can't think. Uh, my ears would ring and that would come and go. And it wasn't a constant thing. But randomly, if I'm walking somewhere, my ears would start ringing and it's intense. And then, okay, you sit down and it calms, it calms down and you're fine. So it's that level of it's not a constant thing all the time. Um, I would have weird things like shoulder blade pain, um, a lot of like stomach heavy feeling. Um, for me, it wasn't always only late in the day either. Sometimes I would wake up, my pounding head would actually awake me because it was so intense. Um, but it did get worse as the day went on. But sometimes I woke up with it too. Thank you very much. Thank you.